part of not taking direct orders from the government means that in some cases, maybe rare cases, but in some cases, and certainly the case here, you can see them acting a little bit faster and a little bit more forcefully because maybe they have the insights that government doesn't have or isn't looking for about how dangerous these groups are becoming. So I think you're absolutely right that it's a, a cascade of failures. There were law enforcement failures and failures on the part of the tech companies to prevent these movements from growing and organizing. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 1st, 2021. We're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth podcast, the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on our online information ecosystem. Today, Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Issy Lepowski, a senior reporter at the tech journalism publication Protocol. We invited Issy on the show to discuss last week's hearing before the House Energy and Commerce Committee with the CEOs of Facebook, Google, and Twitter. The first time the companies had been called to testify on the Hill after the Capitol riot, which focused public attention on the content moderation policies of tech platforms when it comes to domestic extremism. The hearing produced some interesting takeaways, but also lots of moments when the CEOs were awkwardly forced to answer complicated questions with a simple yes or no answer. We also discussed ISI's reporting on how tech companies have struggled to figure out how to address far-right extremism in the U.S. as opposed to Islamist extremism. And we talked about Section 230 reform, of course, and what it's like reporting on the tech space. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 1st. Tech CEOs head to the Hill again. Let's start at the obvious place, given the timing of when we're talking to you. Uh, Last week, we had yet another hearing on the Hill with the CEOs of Facebook, Twitter, and Google. And so, yes or no, uh, how well did five hours and 13 minutes of lawmakers yelling at tech executives to steal complex social issues with lots of inevitable and difficult trade-offs into concrete steps of reform? Um, And more seriously, if you can't answer that question with a yes or no, like the tech executives couldn't answer the, the law makers questions on the day with a simple yes or no. Did you find it valuable? Was there anything that you learned out of that experience? Yes, I did learn some things. One, I learned that it seems as if Facebook is preparing to take a different approach in how they enter these discussions. You know, I think traditionally we've seen Mark Zuckerberg or any of his deputies come to Washington and be pretty contrite, you know, admit that they've made mistakes, talk about how we have so much work to do, our work will never really be done. And this time he really wasn't taking that approach. He really wasn't taking that tone. He was there obviously to talk in large part about how Facebook contributed to the Capitol riot on January 6th. And he, you know, right from the jump, turned it around on former President Trump and said that we did our part to ensure election integrity. And then President Trump got up there and incited a riot effectively. And again and again, he returned to this. And when the lawmakers asked each of the each of the witnesses, Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, and Sundar Pichai, whether they take any responsibility. I mean, Sundar kind of equivocated, and Mark was the only one who completely avoided the question. And Jack, you know, copped to it a little bit. He said, yes, we take responsibility, but you have to take into account the other forms of media out there, television and, you know, just politics in general. But I thought that that was something that I walked away from, which is, okay, it's clear that Facebook is is taking a different approach here. I'm not sure I know why, why they are taking a slightly more combative approach than they have in the past, but I thought that was interesting. I was struck by that as well, particularly in contrast with Sundar Pichai of Google and Jack Dorsey of Twitter's approaches. As you said, Google is a little more contrite. Twitter, I was really struck by how in response to the barrage of yes or no questions, Dorsey was sort of the the one who tried to answer some of the questions in yeses or nos, but also said, you know, this is really complicated. We're trying as hard as we can, sort of seemed to be in his sort of cryptic way trying to put a little more nuance on the table. I'm curious what you make of that. Is it just a personality thing or does it speak to the sort of the different way that these different companies are situated? Yeah, I think in general, Twitter is better than the other companies at admitting its faults. We've seen Jack sort of 
take this approach uh, many times before and the company tends to cop to its mistakes a lot more easily than the other companies, which I mean, Google, YouTube, Evelyn, as you talk about a lot, typically just kind of bury their head in the sand. And Facebook often takes this really defensive or even goes on the offense approach whenever it's facing any kind of scrutiny. Um, You see Twitter sort of agreeing with its critics more often than the other companies. But I think, yeah, I think that Jack was also trying a new approach, not as combative as as Mark, but you heard in his opening statements, he was trying to sort of head off some of the dumb questions that he knew he was going to get. He was like, you know, you may sit there today and ask me about some tweets that we did or did not remove and that whether that was or wasn't a mistake. And I'll say something like, I'll get back to you on that. And I don't think that that's very productive. So I would prefer to talk about XYZ. I think part of it is that these guys are just kind of like sick of getting berated for the mistakes of their very large companies, or in some cases, not mistakes, but um, they're being told that they've made mistakes. And they feel that the decisions they made were in keeping with their policies. And I think that they feel as though it's gotten to a point where they've been through this so many times before. Now, can we, if, if we're going to keep coming here, can we, can we try to talk about actual policy, actually, like what might change the situation so we don't have to just keep coming here time and again? Thank you for the YouTube shout out. I'm glad that we can get a <laughs> Susan Wojcicki to the Hill 2021 campaign uh, mention in. I, I'm always grateful for the opportunity. You know, I'm struck by like, you, you, you're being fairly generous to the hearing, I think. You know, you're saying you got these things out of it. But I'm also struck by the fact that, you know, it was five hours and 13 minutes long. And we've sort of like tried to distill something a little bit useful from it. But like, generally, I would say that's a very long time to have, uh, have walked away with, with so little. And, you know, when, when Congress held its first hearing with, with Facebook, Twitter and Google in 2017, it was a huge deal. You know, finally, big tech is being called to account. And now it sort of feels like it's just another Thursday. You know, this hearing was, I think, the 18th with someone from Twitter. And I've, I've lost count with the other companies. And it was at least the, the fifth with Mark Zuckerberg. As someone that's been, you know, watching this space the entire time, you know, you sort of just mentioned how it seems like the the executives themselves are getting a little bit fed up with the charade of it. Do you think lawmakers are? Do you think we are getting to a point where this, you know, is, is going to change? Are they going to stop? Or are we just going to be in this doom loop forever because it, it serves some political purpose? Oh, gosh. Well, first, that's the that's the challenge with yes or no questions, right? You asked, is there anything that I learned? So I said yes. And so I went, I went with it. But you're totally right that, you know, much of it was repetitive, much of it was redundant. And especially in these virtual hearings, you can't tell which one of the members has just logged in right before they ask their question. Were they even listening the whole time? So, yeah, I fully agree with you on that point. Like, did I need another five hours of this? Probably not. I don't think this is the last time we're going to see these guys testifying before Congress. I do think that it is, it suggests some progress that now they're coming to the table with some proposals. And not to say that these are proposals that I think fix everything or even anything, but, you know, it, it wasn't too long ago that when Mark Zuckerberg first came to Congress after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, that he was sort of reluctant to talk about accepting any kind of regulation at all. And of course, the regulations that they're putting forward now are, you know, quite generous to Facebook in that they are things that Facebook by and large already does and could easily comply with. But I do think that we have to think about this in the context of you know, three years of com- of these conversations. Has it been three years? I feel like it started in, no, 2017, I feel like was one of the first tech hearings. It was right before I got married. And the conversation has moved since then. It's moved very slowly, but I do look at it in that context. But I, I don't think that this is the last we're going to see of these guys. I, I just want to say, I like that the, these hearings are so enmeshed in your life that you can date it to your marriage and say, yeah. aha, yes, that's how long we've been doing this. <laughs> yeah, I think I did. I did another interview like the day before my wedding about something like this. And yeah, it, I think it became somewhat infamous in that radio station because they thought I was like about to walk down the aisle as I did the interview, which was not the case. <laughs> it was like a day before. So, so one thing that was different about this hearing is that it was the first since the January 6th riot. 
And as we kind of touched on, one of the yes or no questions that the CEOs were asked was whether they took responsibility for the Stop the Steal movement that culminated in the riot. Um, so Zuckerberg and Pachai demurred. Dorsey said yes, but you have to take into consideration the broader ecosystem. You've done some really thorough reporting on the difficulties and the weaknesses and the response of tech platforms to domestic extremists as opposed to foreign extremists. So can we start by asking you to just give us a broad overview of what you found in your reporting? Sure. So, yeah, so my story was inspired by reporting I had done in the past on the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, which is this cross-industry group that YouTube, I believe Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter, I think those are the founders. Uh, they basically came together um, to start this cross-industry group where they would share hashed images that were associated with ISIS and al-Qaeda or foreign terrorist organizations. And this came about due to tremendous pressure that they were facing from the Obama administration and, and regulatory groups and lawmakers across the EU during the rise of ISIS. And uh, they were going to meetings, you know, with the UK Home Office, they were going to meetings at the White House. These were, you know, intense discussions with people from President Obama on down asking Silicon Valley to do more to fight the spread of ISIS, which was, you know, like no other terrorist group before it, using social media as a recruitment tool and as a propaganda tool. Just, you know, they had a brand online. They had slogans. They had songs. They had, you know, recipes. And they, they were just sort of like a cultural phenomenon in addition to being this terrorist organization. And so the companies really banded together. And I remember after Charlottesville, you know, thinking this is an event that very clearly was associated with neo-Nazi groups and white supremacist groups here in the United States. It was planned on Facebook. Why hasn't Facebook or why haven't any of these companies taken the same approach to domestic extremist groups as they have taken to foreign terrorist organizations? And I wrote a little story about that for Wired at the time. So that was 2017. Uh, fast forward to now, you know, seeing the Capitol riot, I thought the same thing. Huh, have any of those tools that were developed for the purposes of ISIS around the same time that we saw Charlottesville happen, have any of them been deployed against domestic extremist groups? And so that's what sort of inspired me to write this story about the parallel efforts to crack down on foreign terrorists versus domestic terrorists. And, you know, there are technical reasons why it is more challenging to crack down on domestic extremists for one thing unlike ISIS you know they aren't all so clearly branded you know I, I spoke with someone at at Jigsaw which is a, a part of Alphabet and they were saying you know part of the, what made it easy to create this push against ISIS content was the very nature of belonging to ISIS is you needed to publicly profess your your association with ISIS. The same may not be true. Like what, what we've seen in some reports that have come out about the Capitol riot is a lot of these people were not necessarily part of some paramilitary group like the Oath Keepers. They were these sort of just believers just going along with with the crowd inspired by maybe it was the president, maybe it was neighbors, maybe it was friends, but they weren't associated with any one organization, which makes it tricky just from a technical perspective to find the content that needs to be removed. You need to take a step back and say, okay, but the companies also have to set rules about what should be removed. And that's where the political challenges come in, because unlike foreign terrorist organizations in the United States, we do not have designations for domestic terrorist organizations. So while a lot of these companies have for a long time had policies against, you know, very classic hate groups like the KKK, newer organizations like the Oath Keepers or even things that you wouldn't call an organization, but are just sort of a belief system like QAnon, they didn't really have policies against these groups until the lead up to 2020 when they started looking at how dangerous they might become. So you have the technical challenges of these groups being more disparate and diffuse. You have the political challenges of not having a sort of top-down direction from government about who these groups are. And then you have the third challenge 
challenge, which is having the Trump administration in power. And if anything, a lot of these groups, as we saw on January 6th, were supporters of President Trump. And, you know, for four years, these companies faced lashing after lashing about how they were censoring, quote unquote, Trump supporters or conservatives in general. And so we saw these companies sort of repeatedly bending to the Trump administration's wishes um, and conservatives' criticisms in general, and that complicated the calculus even more. So I think you saw my story tracks from 2017 when Charlottesville happened all the way up till the Capitol riot and sort of tracks why the approach to domestic extremists lagged the approach to foreign extremists and how that is starting to change. And I do think that January 6th was a wake-up call for a lot of these companies, and you saw it in their responses. But obviously, and I think admittedly on their part, they have a long way to go. So that's incredibly useful in laying out sort of all the the different factors, because I think there's this sort of general sense of how did they miss this? How come nothing happened? And I think those are some really sort of tangible, concrete reasons for why. And one of the things that I think you emphasized in the piece, which was really interesting and important, was this political aspect that you're talking about and about how politically foreign extremists are different. And I think a lot about the difference that political leadership here could have made. Like, for example, you mentioned QAnon and the House didn't vote to condemn QAnon until October, whereas there was sort of this general sense that why aren't the companies acting far before then? But there wasn't this general sense of why isn't Congress acting to to condemn this sort of extremist and and fantastical, ridiculous conspiracy theory. And so I'm wondering if you had a sense when talking to the, the, the people from the tech companies that you talked to, whether there was this sense that they were waiting for political leadership, like that if political leadership had done something more, that would have opened up much more space for them to to act? Yeah, so it's a very good question. So I spoke with a number of the people who run this work at these companies on the record. I spoke with Brian Fishman at Facebook. He heads their dangerous organizations and, and counterterrorism work. And I spoke with Nick Pickles at Twitter. And they are not going to admit that they were waiting for a sign from the Trump administration or any administration because these guys, you know, they they will say we work for global companies. We cannot be answering the the mandate of any one leader because, you know, the the whims of these leaders change and we don't want to be there's a reason why we don't take our cues from individual leaders because we see how that power can be abused. But at the same time, you know, when I asked, what what are you looking for from, from the Biden administration? Of course, they subtly say, you know, any signals from government, particularly from intelligence or the FBI, about what we, we should be watching out for are signals we're going to take in the, into account. They are valuable signals, you know, similar to the work that they've done around coordinated inauthentic activity around the elections. You know, they were taking a lot of cues from from law enforcement and from the intelligence community. And so I think they will admit to that part. They'll say, yes, this is an important cue. And and yes, we would love, you know, we would love, Brian Fishman said, we would love government to, you know, show their footnotes, like tell us if they're going to put out a warning about domestic extremism, why are they putting out this warning? So yes, I think they would like a little bit more collaboration. Would they admit that that's something that they didn't get during the Trump years, or that that's something that they felt like they needed? Not necessarily. But of course, when you talk to employees, you know, who have left the company, or who have worked on these issues, they will say, like, absolutely, you know, these companies didn't want to piss off the Trump administration. And you can see that in XYZ explanation. But I will also say that, you know, there are good reasons why we shouldn't want these companies to just follow the lead of every president of the United States, who they say is the most dangerous person in the world or the most dangerous group in the world, because, you know, it wasn't that long ago that President Trump was saying after Kenosha that, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters were domestic terrorists. And, you know, we have to look back even farther to the civil rights movement and surveillance of groups like the Black Panthers and civil rights leaders. And so, you know, it is very clear how 
that power can be abused. And I even in, in my story, I have another example, um, a man who was working with Facebook on some hackathons around the world. And these hackathons were supposed to address online hate and discrimination. And so it was supposed to deal with all, all forms of online hate. And he helped run a hackathon in India. And the, the head of Facebook's India public policy, he says, began pressuring him after that point for the future hackathons he was supposed to run with them to focus on Islamic extremism coming out of Kashmir. And this is this this woman was a very vocal supporter of Modi. And, you know, there are obvious issues there um, with his administration and the, the, the treatment of Muslims in the country. So he, that was something he pushed back on and said, absolutely not. I'm not going to take that mandate from you. And so I think we have to remember as much as we want government to lead on these issues, it is important not to not to have these companies just follow the lead of every every government around the world because that's not always going to be the most sage guidance. I'm interested and I want I want to dig in a little more on the law enforcement and intelligence aspect because I think that in connection with your point about taking the lead of governments or not, there's something interesting to dig into here. So from from my perch at Lawfare, I've been really interested in what congressional hearings seem to be showing about the just complete failure of the FBI to anticipate or do basically anything in the run up to January 6th. Now, if we want to be fair, you know, some of this is that the intelligence community obviously is more limited in what it can do when it comes to domestic groups, thanks to, among other things, that that pesky, pesky First Amendment. But part of it just seems to be a genuine failure on the part of the Bureau to take this threat seriously, which may have to do with fear among people at the FBI about how President Trump might respond to the news that the Bureau was treating his supporters as a potential threat. And in connection with what you were saying about information sharing, I mean, it sounds to me like part of what might have happened on January 6th is that there's there's kind of a cascade of failures, right? Like if the if tech companies of Twitter and Facebook are waiting for the Bureau to say, hey, this might be a problem, and then the Bureau does nothing because they're worried about what happens if Trump gets a hold of it, then the tech companies don't get the signal to sort of say, okay, go, and you end up with just a a sort of Rube Goldberg machine of institutions crashing and burning. Does that sound right to you or am I overstating that? No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, at the hearing, I think Jack was the most accurate when he took responsibility and said, yes, but you have to look at the broader landscape. And it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, the New York Times, I think it was, had a story recently about how how the intelligence community just was not taking the Proud Boys seriously in the lead up to to January 6th. And I tweeted something about this because as part of my reporting, you know, I was surprised actually to learn that Facebook and and Twitter, I believe, had banned the Proud Boys in, I think, 2018. So, you know, part of not taking direct orders from the government means that in some cases, maybe rare cases, but in some cases, and certainly the case here, you can see them acting a little bit faster and a little bit more forcefully, because maybe they have the insights that government doesn't have or isn't looking for about how dangerous these groups are becoming. So I think you're absolutely right that it's a, a cascade of failures. There were law enforcement failures, and and then there were failures on the part of the tech companies to prevent these movements from growing and organizing. Yeah, and I, I sort of want to underscore as well what you said earlier about it's not actually a simple question about how tech companies and, and law enforcement should necessarily interact. I think we have seen broadly over the last few years, and in particular in, in the wake of sort of the perceived failures or the actual failures in 2016 around Russian interference, there's been a trend towards you know greater collaboration between tech companies and law enforcement, and they re- release these very vague and useless press statements saying, we are working 
very closely together. Um, and and that that's not necessarily a simple question for all of the the reasons that you mentioned about the politicization of these issues, even if sometimes it means that there are enables a stronger response. And you know, one of the examples here, you can compare sort of this hearing with the previous hearing where it was in the wake of the fiasco around the New York Post's Hunter Biden story, where Mm. one of the reasons why the platforms said that they took the actions that they took was because they had been tipped off by the intelligence community that they should be on the lookout for a hack and leak operation. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this was this unusual moment of them stepping in within hours really quickly from this story from a a mainstream uh, media outlet uh, in a way that we hadn't seen before because of as a result of that collaboration for, for better or worse. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I can't resist, you note in your story that Google and YouTube declined to make any executives available for comment. And I'm just curious to know whether they were the only platform that didn't let you talk to anyone and whether that's a typical experience when you're doing reporting on these topics. Yeah, this was a story where I was really focusing on um, Google, Facebook and Twitter. And so, yes, of the three companies, they were the only ones that did not offer anybody. I um, reported on Jigsaw in the past and have spoken with um, Yasmin Green a bunch. Um, If you're not familiar with Jigsaw, that's basically, uh, it used to be Google Ideas, and it basically is the subset of Alphabet that, you know, focuses on emerging emerging problems and emerging threats. So they have done a lot of research on, they did a lot of research on on ISIS, propaganda online. They have since moved on to studying uh, domestic extremism and white supremacy. So I was able to get a direct line to them, but no, Google and YouTube did not offer to let me speak to anyone um, despite my frequent requests. And yeah, that is, I would say that's a somewhat common theme. I won't, I won't paint with too broad a brush because I have, you know, I've been able to interview Susan in the past. I've been able to interview YouTube executives, but, but yeah, lately I've, I've noticed they're a little bit more shut down. And I don't know if that's part of what you've regularly noted, Evelyn, which is that they are sort of happy to let Facebook keep tripping over itself and um, get yelled at by lawmakers and kind of keep their heads down. But there's certainly plenty to ask them about. And I think, you know, I I think the story was stronger because I had the insights from Brian and Nick at Facebook and Twitter to basically talk about things from their perspective. Of course, they're going to try to spin me a little bit. That's their job. They don't want to lose their job. But I felt like they were actually fairly candid. And and I felt like that really helped the story. So I, I think the story would have benefited from some perspective from YouTube, um, particularly because, you know, what I did get from YouTube and from their spokespeople was basically, you know, confirmation of my my point, which is that they, you know, they said that we ban content at the content level, not the speaker level. The only people that we ban at the speaker level are people who are designated foreign terrorist organizations. And I said, aha, well, I guess that's <laughs> that's the point, right? You're not you're not taking this speaker level action in the way that actually Facebook and Twitter are against domestic extremists. You're looking only at their videos and as long as domestic extremists aren't on any sort of government designated list, I guess from YouTube's point of view, they're not going to be dealt with in that way, which isn't to say YouTube has not cracked down on certain large categories of videos, say QAnon content or what have you. Um, But I think it is telling that the only speaker level action they take, which is to say, I'm going to ban you based on the person that you are, that only applies to foreign terrorist organizations. That's really interesting. I I actually hadn't realized they were relying so heavily on the DFTO list. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's uh, talk about Section 230, everyone's favorite thing to argue about. Um, <laughs> we recently had uh, Daphne Keller on to walk us through the main proposals for reform. So we'll, we'll spare you there. But we did want to talk to you about how the story looks from your perspective as a reporter. And specifically, I figured we could start off with an interview you recently did with uh, Senator Mark Warner about his Safe Tech Act, which Warner has sold as removing liability protection uh, for platforms for ads or paid content. So for any of our listeners who haven't seen it, it's a great interview for people interested in the politics of 230 reform. And it got kind of exciting. (laughs) There was a Mm -hmm. moment where you and the senator seemed to maybe 
not be on the same page. So I'm curious to hear your perception about what the bone of contention was there. So yes, so I will, I have a few thoughts on this. One is just as a journalist, I think one of the points of contention was that the senator was getting frustrated with my questions in part because it seemed to me that he thought that I was voicing my opinions, whereas I was more or less asking him questions that come straight from, you know, the the criticisms that, you know, the EFF and other organizations have put forward about what happens when basically his bill includes an affirmative defense requirement, which would basically remove one of the core benefits to a lot of businesses of Section 230, which is that, you know, they get their cases dismissed rather quickly. And the idea is if you have to stand up an affirmative defense, well, that's more costly and time consuming and harder for smaller companies. And so the questions I was asking him were criticisms that I had read and heard from organizations like the EFF. And so I think on, on one level, he kept coming back to me saying, well, if you disagree with this, then then we just disagree. And I was trying to make the point that these are not my opinions. These are criticisms I'm asking him about as a journalist, because he is a lawmaker who has put forth this law. And then I think the other issue where we weren't seeing eye to eye and where I do have viewpoints here is that Section 230 is a law that governs not just big tech giants, it governs all all tech platforms. So the senator was continually framing Section 230 as a law that has given big tech companies and scammers a get out of jail free pass. And I was, you know, pushing the senator to say, well, yes, of course, you know, there there have been abuses of Section 230. And also, you know, what happens when when smaller platforms that don't have a lot of lawyers, don't have a lot of money, lose this form of defense? Can, can they survive it? And that was a question he really didn't want to grapple with. So we are not so constrained by reporting norms, and I will freely offer an opinion for what it's worth, that <laughs> from the viewer's perspective, you came out looking great and uh, and him not so much. I mean, you're absolutely right. They were questions that any good staffer should have prepared him for as the natural and obvious criticism of the bill that experts uh, had been making all over the place uh, since it had been released. And, you know, th that highlighted to me something that's really interesting about this space, and that's how much of it is about narrative control and, and political grandstanding, which was obviously on, on full display at the hearing on the Hill last week too. So, you know, it feels like Section 230 reform has become such a high profile issue. Um, so lawmakers are really using it to advance their own political image and, and capitalize on the attention that you kind of just get for having a 230 reform bill right now. And, you know, I know that one thing that annoyed a bunch of experts in this space was Warner had sort of released the, the Safe Tech Act, selling it as kind of a really small, reasonable and, and proportionate change to 230 when, as you sort of just laid out, in actual fact, some of the procedural changes are, are quite significant and have substantive consequences. So do you think that's a fair characterization from your perspective of like of, of what's going on here, that this is sort of political narrative control and, and that that's a really important part of, of the dynamics in this space? And, and how, do, how does that affect how you report on it? I don't know if I want to go that far with the Safe Tech Act, because I think, yes, I think some of the Section 230 reform proposals we've seen cough, cough from Josh Hawley, uh, have been a little bit more about political grandstanding. I know how much work went into the Safe Tech Act. I know the voices that were involved in in offering guidance on, on the Safe Tech Act. And I do think these are, you know, committed experts who are wanting to address the online harms that Section 230 does enable. So civil rights violations and you know, harassment and, you know, various, you know, online harms that, you know, we often don't discuss when we're lost talking about, you know, the censorship aspect of Section 230. So I don't think that this is just political grandstanding, where I do think that the senator has maybe room for growth is to, you know, he, he discussed a number of like sort of iconic cases in Section 230 law, arms list and the grinder case, some of the most notorious cases where I think, you know, it's, it's very clear that, that harm was caused and then sort of brushes past 
all of the times where Section 230 does protect companies from from frivolous lawsuits or what have you. So I think that that is where there's room for negotiation in this bill. I mean, I know that some of the people who consulted on the Safe Tech Act, like they're not happy with every part of it either, because they see where some of the drafting is a little overly broad. For instance, you brought up the the paid content part of the bill, which uh, I don't know the exact phrasing, but it says something to the effect of these companies would lose immunity if they accepted payment to make the speech available. And and again, that's not the exact wording. And the wording is important because from what I've heard talking to, to experts and lawyers on this topic is that it is relatively broad. And it seems like the, the drafters of the bill wanted that to address speech that is contained within an advertisement. But some are concerned that you know, because of the way it's written, it could also apply to speech that appears next to an advertisement or behind a paywall or something like that. So I think that those are criticisms that even people who worked on this bill have. Um, so I think that, you know, there, there just has to be room for <laughs> admitting the vulnerabilities of, of a bill like this. There's got to be room for negotiation and seeing where things can be cleaned up a little bit. So you talked about how just how many people are involved in these conversations, experts, drafters, staffers, members of Congress. Uh, obviously, there's a, a whole slew of bills, some more serious, some less so. What is it like reporting on the total chaos that is 230 reform right now? Like, what's your impression of how knowledgeable staffers on the Hill are about these issues when you talk to them? What's like the, you know, the vibe on the Hill, so to speak? <laughs> well, I think there are a lot of very knowledgeable staffers on the Hill. Those aren't always the people who get to speak to the press. So those are not necessarily, you know, the, the spoke people who write or call with their angry feedback about the way you portrayed the bill. Um, but I think there are a lot of knowledgeable people on the Hill with regard to this topic. I, I will say it's gotten to a point where there are so many proposals that we don't necessarily cover all of them. The reason we covered the Safe Tech Act and thought it was important was because it was, you know, the first bill coming out on Section 230 reform since Democrats had taken over the Senate. And so we felt like that was really something of note. And, and so we wanted to make sure that we we covered it. But I think we're not going to cover every single bill that is floated, uh, particularly, you know, if there's not bipartisan support, which as far as I know, I don't think there was with the Safe Tech Act. Um, but again, because Democrats had just come into power and this was sort of sort of planting a flag on where they top Democrats stand on Section 230 reform, we thought it was worthy of coverage. So to sort of move to another aspect of, of reporting, you recently had a viral thread about how corporate flax answer questions. Oh my god! And it was hilarious. And and please feel free to reprise some of your favorites. Um, and it no doubt took off because there are a lot of people that feel the very same frustration that you were expressing in that thread, which I think gets to a larger point. You know, as researchers and reporters, we are so totally beholden often to the limited scraps of transparency that these platforms deign to give us or, you know, too often choose not to give us. And so how do you think about your reporting relationships in that context? You know, your, your thread suggests that there's perhaps not a small amount of sort of frustration and angst. Do you think that this is a harder space to report on? And, and especially in the context of sort of this story that seems to be playing out at the moment about sort of animosity between media and the tech industry? Yeah, it's definitely a hard beat to cover um, because you have these large companies that have these enormous press shops that all they do is try to think about you know ways to frame what they're doing as just being the best thing ever and sometimes you know that that is not true but you're swimming upstream um, trying to separate fact from fiction so I mean the way I think about it is that I just always want to get all viewpoints I want to make sure that I have spoken to people who have done business with this company or left this company and can speak in a more candid way. And I want to make sure that I get as full a response from the company as possible, because sometimes there are, sometimes people on the outside do have agendas, or sometimes there are things that people have missed. And for instance, in the, in the course of reporting my extremism story, you know, I was, somebody told me a rather big detail um, about something that happened with Facebook during the the Trump administration when the Trump administration came into office and when I you know called 
another few people, it turned out that it just wasn't true. So first and foremost, I want my reporting to be buttoned up. And I think that you can only do that once you've gotten every perspective represented. But but yeah, I think it is really challenging. You know, I did post that Twitter thread out of frustration because it just shocks me sometimes. I mean, I guess I, I what I want to say is when press reps and flack you know, talk to you like a, a normal human being. <laughs> I think that is just when, and it sounds so stupid, but that is just when you're going to have the most productive relationship um, from both ends. That's when I'm going to understand what you're saying. I'm going to have a fuller conversation with you to figure out, like, make sure I'm getting all the nuances of what you're saying. And then sometimes you just are talking to a brick wall or you're talking to a robot and it's just not the way people talk to each other in normal human interaction. So I was saying, you know, imagine, imagine answering any question in your life the way that, you know, corporate flax answer questions, and you just wouldn't, you would not start with some like, long, like reflective, you know, paragraph before getting to to what you were originally saying, Evelyn, the yes or no questions answer, which sometimes you never get the yes or no, you just get this long, kind of irrelevant explanation and like, dozens of bullet points on background paraphrasable like it's just such like they've just created their own little world of jargon and um, they try to dictate the terms so much more than I think a lot of reporters are comfortable with Um, my best relationships with PR folks at tech companies and I, I have had a lot of good ones are when people will just like talk to me like a human being and level with me but but then again you you still have to be on guard because you don't want to believe too much that they're leveling with you is always really leveling with you and not spin. Yeah. So if you permit me, I'd like to just read a couple of them because they're, they are pretty funny. Sure. <laughs> so we have, um, so answering any question the way that corporate flax answer questions, you know, did you empty the dishwasher last night? Answer. I have a long history of emptying the dishwasher. I first emptied the dishwasher in 2014 and have since prioritized emptying the dishwasher. Fundamentally, unloading the dishwasher is hard and it will never truly be finished. <laughs> yeah. So in the context of another story about the relationships between academics and platforms, you tweeted about an interaction you had with Facebook where they had told you that an academic was breaching their terms of service by collecting data on users that hadn't consented. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of how it played out and whether you think it suggests broader lessons about reporting on tech? Because it's a really interesting little story. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that was sort of what I was getting at in my last answer to you. So this was a story about the team behind the NYU Ad Observer, which is a browser extension that people voluntarily download. And when they do, it reports back to the NYU team the targeting information on the political ads that they see on Facebook, because Facebook doesn't show targeting information to the broader public. It only shows you targeting information when you have seen an ad. So it says you've been served this ad because you're interested in whatever, Justin Timberlake, because I am. Uh, So they received a cease and desist letter from Facebook, basically saying they were breaching Facebook's terms of service, which they are. They are scraping data from Facebook, which is a violation of their terms of service. And also, you know, their, their browser extension has full access to everything that a person sees on their Facebook page. And so that obviously includes a lot of third-party data. And ever since Cambridge Analytica, Facebook has rightly been sensitive to that. But the NYU team, of course, has said, you know, we take every privacy precaution. A a number of them are cybersecurity researchers. So this is really top of mind. And uh, they say, we don't scrape any of that third-party data. We only scrape data from the users who had installed our app. We only scrape their targeting information and the content of the ad and the advertiser. So I go into my reporting with that awareness. And then I reach out to Facebook for comment. Well, Facebook tells me, no, this this browser extension, Ad Observer, doesn't just scrape data from its users. It scrapes data from people who never consented to have the extension downloaded or never consented to have their information scraped. And it publishes that information. And they're telling me this like hours before my deadline. And I'm just so stunned because I've been reporting on this for months. And I go back to the NYU researchers. They say, we've never heard them make that claim ever before. And we've been in negotiations with them, you know, through her lawyers now for months. And we've just never heard that concern. 
I go back to Facebook. They say, no, they're most definitely taking and publishing data from people who never consented to have their data published. Well, after I'm telling you hours of going back and forth and so many conversations, and and I went back through with the NYU researcher who got on a Google Hangout with me and literally took me into the data so I could see what is in there. She's, and she goes, the only names in here are the names of advertisers. And a light bulb kind of went off because Facebook had been using pretty vague language. They were saying they're scraping data and publishing data of, of people who never consented, but they didn't say who those people were. So I go back to Facebook and say, are you, when you, when you say these people didn't consent, are you talking about the advertisers, the advertisers whose pages are public, the advertisers who are paying you to make their ads seen by an audience, the advertisers whose ads you publish in an ad library publicly for anyone to see and store for seven years? Is that the private information that you're accusing them of having uh, collected and published? And the answer turned out to be yes. And of course, Facebook has its reasons for that. They say, well, not every advertiser is you know, Donald Trump. Some of them are very small advertisers. Some of their ads may contain their cell phone number because let's say they're a, a small um, charity, maybe uh, advertising about a, a, a political cause. So, you know, understood that there are select cases where, you know, somebody's private information and maybe they're not a big somebody gets caught up in this. But the fact of the matter is whoever that person is still has a public page as an advertiser. They are still paying to make these ads public. And Facebook is voluntarily storing and publishing those ads in a searchable database. So that shrunk the concern in my mind about what the ad observer team was doing down substantially. And frankly, I said to Facebook, you know, you want to make sure that you get this as clear as possible for me, because if I publish that they are scraping data on, you know, just the average Facebook user and publishing it, that's a lot worse for Facebook. That's not just bad for the NYU team. That's bad for Facebook. That's another Cambridge Analytica. But if it's that they are scraping data on advertisers whose information is already public, that might still be a violation of your policy point taken, but let's be very clear about what we're talking about. And so, yeah, I thought that that was a really illuminating exchange where I thought, you know, I was on deadline and on another day, I might have just published that this is Facebook's rationale. This is the NYU researcher's denial and, you know, moved on in the story. You've read a million stories that do that. I'm really glad I pushed back in this situation. I did so mostly because this was a story that, I mean, I, I hope that I would always push back, but this was a story I had a little bit more time with. This is a source that I had been talking to for months and whose re response to me leveling that allegation was just like complete and utter panic. I mean, they shut it down. They shut down Ad Observer so that nobody could download their data because I had I had come to them with that accusation from Facebook, which turned out to be their panic turned out to be a little bit for naught because they, of course, they knew they were publishing advertisers' data. That's the whole point of the project. So it's a frankly in, insane story, and it just sounds absolutely exhausting. And, you know, I, that kind of gaslighting, you know, more broadly must kind of make you feel sometimes like you're that guy from that meme with the, tr the, the pin board and the string looking kind of insane about trying to, you know, work out what's true <laughs> and what the real story is here. You're talking Charlie. I'm from Philadelphia. Yeah. You gotta know. That's the time. one. People can look it up if my uh, wonderful description didn't immediately conjure the image to mind. Um, <laughs> so Protocol, the, the outlet that you work for, is just a little over a year old. Uh, so congratulations. Happy birthday. And it's it's a great outlet and you've had some fantastic impact. I'm curious if you have like a favorite story of yours or some stories that you've covered that you think haven't got a lot of attention you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this space is it's it is somehow very media and narrative driven what gets attention in and and what sort of what are the content moderation issues that become sort of the hot button issues and then subsequently are the ones that are actually addressed by tech platforms because so much of what they do is PR management rather than like strategic actually thinking about uh, how to deal with this space and so I'm always curious sort of whether you think that there's sort of some important story that's not breaking through I mean I think that a lot of it does depend on just like when you hit 
in the news cycle. So there was a period last summer where ByteDance and TikTok was just the most urgent story to be covering. You had to drop everything if anything happened um, with regard to Trump's whole effort to, to ban TikTok. And then a few months later, I think this might have been post-election, but I'm not positive. But I wrote a story about how, you know, TikTok is one of ByteDance's properties that, you know, has undertaken the most effort to separate its data from its Chinese counterparts in, in ByteDance. And, you know, there's been so much angst about, you know, especially from the Trump administration about, you know, is TikTok spying on us and whatnot. Meanwhile, there are, I wrote about a number of other ByteDance apps that had, you know, tons of users in the US and around the world who, if you, you know, download Google Translate, like I had to do, you can read their privacy policies very clearly. And it says that they share data with China. And that is where data is stored. And these are apps that, you know, have everything from English language learning um, to uh, basically the Chinese version of YouTube, a number of different apps. And so I wrote this story and I thought it was going to be a huge deal. Like I thought there were going to be congressional investigations about all these other ByteDance apps that were sending data to China just very openly. And I don't think very many people read it. Maybe, I think it was, it might've been before the holidays and I'll just blame that. But I think that if that story had run maybe during the summer, maybe it would have gotten more attention. I actually think that's a perfect example of the dynamic that I was talking about, right? Like there was this period where TikTok was just dominating the news cycle for so long because it had become a hot button political issue and the the Trump administration and and the president himself had made it such a, a hot topic. And now it's completely slipped out of the news cycle. We barely talk about TikTok at all. But many of the issues that you know were, were raised there are still there. All of the users are still there. And yet somehow we're just back to talking about Facebook and Twitter and never YouTube and never TikTok. It's a, it's a, I think that's a perfect example of how somehow the focus isn't always necessarily on the actual substantive impact rather than, rather than what is attracting the headlines. Right, the long the long tail of the issue. I will give a plug though, if anybody listening is interested in TikTok or anything's China tech, we have a, a China desk at Protocol, Protocol China, and they are just like kicking butt and writing amazing stories. And I think that they're doing some really unique journalism. So I wanted to give them a shout out. Absolutely. All right. I think that is all the time we have. But Issy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.